Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And wow, am I excited about this guest, uh, Dr. John DeLynn. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him and then we'll jump in. But uh, I want to say first, John, that you reached out to me to be a guest on your podcast, Mormon Stories Podcast. And at first I was like, I had done a lot with fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. And I was like, do I really want to be on the Mormon Stories Podcast? And you sent me a link to the New York Times front page story where you were excommunicated from the LDS church and I, uh, I, I you know, you, you, you were thrown out because you spoke out as a mental health professional for gay rights and the suicide problem uh, in the LDS church. And they didn't like that you were raising these uh, difficult questions. In any case, I said, John, I'll do your thing, but would you mind reading Combating Cult Mind Control first? And you said, sure. And then I'll never forget it. Two days later, you emailed me, Steve, your book's blowing my mind. And then the next thing that happened was you had a color-coded bite model analysis, which I had never thought to ask people to color code. And I was like, wow, what a great idea, John. Thanks. So kudos to you. But I've been an admirer of your courage. You're a whistleblower. You're an activist. You've helped countless people uh, to uh, to realize there's a whole nother side to this uh, organization. If I'm remembering correctly, John, you're sixth generation. That's right. Nice. Uh, LDS. Good memory. Good memory. Yep. Sixth generation. Okay. I'm going to read your bio okay. and then we'll jump in. Thanks, Steve. So you are, have the Mormon Stories podcast. You are a CEO of a nonprofit. You're an activist, public speaker, religious transitions coach. I want to talk about that with you. You're an expert in understanding and supporting people experiencing religious faith crises and transitions. So regarding your education, you have a master's in instructional technology, a PhD in clinical and counseling psychology. Uh, your clinical training and research in, uh, interests revolve around the nexus of religion and mental health, not a big surprise with an emphasis on navigating religious faith crises, as well as navigating LGBTQ religious identity conflict. So with your Mormon Stories podcast, how many subscribers do you have on YouTube now? Man, it, it's uh, it's been an amazing. So we just passed the 100,000 subscriber mark wow. on YouTube just like last week, and I'm awesome. I'm over the moon thrilled. Yeah, and I'm 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 in awe and jealous at the same time. <laughs> but good work. Our, but TikTok, we have like 210,000. Like TikTok is even crazier than YouTube. So. Well, we'll get into all the incredible work <laughs> and stories because I've learned a lot from listening to your podcast. I want to add. Um, and you, your, your podcast is dedicated to supporting Mormons who are transitioning away from either Mormon orthodoxy or Mormonism altogether. And you've been on every major media thing, from New York Times, NPR, ABC Good Morning America, Nightline, HBO's Vice, Wall Street Journal. It can go on and on and on. You have a TEDx talk that's really worth watching. And when we do the blog, we'll add the link to that, John. And you're Thanks. featured in the HBO's documentary, 
um, film Believer, starring Imagine Dragons, Dan Reynolds, and Neon Trees, Tyler Glenn. So with that, I, <laughs> I, I, I've been wanting you to come on my, my new podcast. And I should say, you asked me, you told me you should be doing a podcast and I can tell you how to do it. And if you want, I can set you up. And I was like, I don't want to do a podcast. I don't want to do it. And I finally got talked into it two years ago. <laughs> I finally got around to it. But you, you're a pioneer on many levels. So you're that unique blend of uh, professional uh, counseling, psychology background. Um, so for my listeners who haven't been introduced to your great work, can you give us just the thumbnail background and how you came to the point where you were excommunicated by the church? Absolutely. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for having me on. I, Your work has been incredibly influential to me and to the hundreds of thousands of Mormons and ex-Mormons that I uh, interact with, not to mention the broader impact mm. on the globe. So thank you for having me on. Thank you for your work. It's an honor to be here. Um, as far as my my quick story, uh, like you said, my ancestors go back to the founding of the Mormon Church in Ohio and Illinois back in the 1830s, which is when Mormonism kind of burst onto the scene. Um, you know, my ancestors were pioneers that either came over from, from Europe or who crossed the plains as Mormon pioneers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the mid-1800s. My, uh, my grandmother, Karma, was uh, the daughter of a third wife of a polygamous marriage. So my great-grandparents were polygamists. Mm -hmm. um, I knew my grandma, so this is wow. not ancient history. This is, you know, this is immediate in my life. Right. Uh, I, my parents, my, my mom was from Idaho, my dad was from Utah. But uh, as part of sort of a Mormon diaspora, I was raised in in Dallas and in Houston or Katy, Texas. Mm. So I, I identify as a Texan, and uh, I was a super devout Orthodox Mormon teenager in Katy, Texas growing up and uh, did all the Mormon things, served a mission, went to Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, met my wife there, got married in a Mormon temple in Washington, D.C., uh, did the Mormon career thing, including working for Bain & Company, which I'm sure you've heard a little bit about sure. in, in your neck of the woods. Yep. Mitt Romney was at Bain Capital. When I was working for um, Bain, I ended up in the tech industry in the early 90s. So I, I, I ended up at Microsoft and um, did you know had four kids with my wife and was living the Mormon dream mm -hmm. until around 2000, 2001. Mm -hmm when I started studying Mormon church uh, history in depth. Believe it or not, I'm in my early 30s before I really start learning the factual historical truths about my own church. Mm. Um, and uh, had a major faith crisis, ended up losing my faith, but was inspired by, uh, by secular Jewish and progressive Jewish authors thinking, well, we don't need to destroy the whole Mormon movement, we can just maybe help influence a progressive Mormon movement from within the church. Right. So inspired by um, Reconstructionist Judaism mm -hmm. and Reformed Judaism, yeah. I left Microsoft in 2004, started Mormon Stories podcast in 2005, mm -hmm. 
And the idea was, let me just interview a bunch of Mormons, talk about all the things the Mormon church is uncomfortable talking about, and we'll create a big tent where progressive Mormons who might be non-literal in their beliefs or might even have criticisms of the church can still coexist in a big umbrella or a big tent of broad Mormonism. And that lasted about 10 years until the Mormon church uh, you know, reprimanded me for giving a TED Talk supporting LGBTQ Mormons and same-sex marriage. They asked me to take my podcast down. I said, ethically, I just can't do that. So 10 years into my podcast in 2015, the Mormon Church excommunicated me. And um, that was the same year I graduated with my PhD in clinical and counseling psychology. So for the past seven or eight years, I've been full-time running the podcast, running the nonprofit, doing workshops and retreats for Mormons in transition, and um, supporting Mormons in need, preventing divorce, prevent, trying to prevent anxiety and depression and, and even suicidality, right. trying to keep families together, and trying to uh, do what you do, which is to help people build healthy and happy lives hmm. after high-demand religion or cult. Yeah, and I'm excited that you and I are talking about doing a workshop together very excited to do that because I respect you so much. And with your Likewise. decades of experience now, uh, as well as having grown up in the Mormon church, I just think you're going to teach me a lot. And hopefully I'll share some of what I've learned that will be uh, new uh, to, to your folks and such. Sure. So if I'm right. Hey, so li listeners, your listeners should wait till the end of the show and we'll announce... Maybe we'll announce a little bit of what we're going to be doing together. Yeah, for sure. And and yeah. for sure, uh, I'm going to do a blog with the video of this, and we'll put all the links up and and, 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 and such. But if I'm remembering correctly, so the Mormon church is different than the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, where Warren Jeffs said that the Mormon church went satanic because they abandoned polygamy. Uh, and I believe that may have been related to uh, the main church wanting to have uh, be, have statehood for Utah and be recognized. But uh, Warren Jeffs is in jail, for, you know, for trafficking underage girls, and so there's lots of of information about that group. And I actually was asked by the Utah and Arizona state attorney generals to do a training on that group. And, and I was actually on Dr. Phil, I confess, uh, not one of my favorite shows or people, but there were two young girls who had run away from FLDS who were not wanting to be married off to 60-plus-year-old men. And so I was asked to counsel them, which I did. They came to Boston. And that resulted ultimately in Warren Jeffs being pursued and, and arrested and put in jail. The cult continues but because of that show, um, I got contacted by, by the Ex-Mormon Foundation. I was like, who are you? Oh, we're the Ex-Mormon Foundation. Would you come to Utah and explain your bite model to us? And I was like, well, I know the FLS, the S is a mind control authoritarian group, but is the LDS really? And they're like, come on out and let's talk. So uh, it was a very, like 250 uh, ex-Mormons, some fifth, sixth generation. I gave a lecture on the bite model. 
I think my second book, Releasing the Bonds, had come out. I think that inter that talk is still on their uh, YouTube. But what blew me away, John, was the man who spoke after me, I think it was, he his talk was called something like uh, Deception as a Management Tool of the LDS Church. And he started with the deceptions of Joseph Smith. And he was a teacher at their training institute for teachers. So he goes through the, so many things that I had never learned about before. And then he ends with a recording he made with his boss saying, so you're telling me I have to lie to my students? about the true history of the church to keep my job? And the boss said, yes, that's right. And he said, well, I quit. <laughs> and I was like, deception as a management tool. That's, you know, right up the Mooney's model <laughs> of mind control and deception about the past. Anyway, forgive me for that memory. But no, that's but great. you were you were so you were raised like so many others, believing uh, gay people were deviant. They were not blessed by God. That they were in sin, if I remember correctly. And then you were in a work environment, made friends with coworkers, and then you realized they were gay. And you were like, wait a minute, they're nice people, and they're moral, and they're kind, and they're smart. So share a little bit more of that revelation about your your you know coming to realize wait a minute some of the really central tenets are off. Yeah, well as far as far as the LGBT uh stuff goes, yeah, I definitely was raised in the 80s uh by my church to believe that homosexuality was not just a sin but it, it was a perversion. That was a word that was used. Yeah. Um, that it was uh, not really much different than bestiality or pedophilia, mm. that it was caused by things like masturbation or rape or abuse, mm. um, and that it was one of the most grievous sins next to murder, basically. Mm. That was right up there. It's like murder, and then, you know, homosexuality would be like right under it. And, um, and you know, that that if you are gay and you're Mormon— you should either be celibate for the rest of your life or, you know, marry someone of the opposite sex and uh, figure out how to endure your life. And then God, hopefully, if you're righteous enough, will fix you in the afterlife. And, of course, the Mormon Church, along with with Orthodox Jews and, and evangelical Christians, were some of the main proponents of, of conversion therapy, including electroshock therapy, for decades and decades. Yeah. So that would have been the environment I grew up in, a very homophobic environment. I don't I didn't I don't think I was ever like overtly um homophobic or abusive, mm. but I certainly would have maybe maybe listened to jokes or entertained jokes about gay people growing up in high school mm -hmm. and I certainly would have had thoughts about them being bad and dirty and sinful and um you know perverted probably. Uh so, you know, a couple things changed me. One was I had a couple cousins uh, growing up who were some of my Utah cousins mm -hmm. who in the in the 80s or early 90s came out as gay. Mm. And that was a really mind-blowing thing for a Mormon young adult to do. These were returned missionaries yeah. who had served missions. They not only came out as gay, they moved back east and just kind of disappeared from the extended family. Right. One of them went to work at the, at the library at Harvard University, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
So these were cousins that I knew and loved. And so I'm like, that's kind of weird. Regardless of whatever they do, why are they disappearing and moving across the country? Right. Then my then my wife's cousin, Scott, uh, came out to us as gay while we were living um, in Seattle working for Microsoft. We loved Scott. And when he told us that he had contemplated death by suicide, that was another like chink in my homophobic Mormon armor, so to speak. Mm. In around 2000, 2001, um, there was a prominent story about a young Mormon returned missionary named Stuart Mattis mm. who, who drove to his local California Mormon chapel, walked up to the steps of the chapel, pinned a note to his chest that said, do not resuscitate and, sh and forgive the graphic nature of what I'm about to say, trigger warning to all those who are sensitive or shouldn't be hearing graphic things. He shot himself uh, and died by suicide on the steps of, of his Mormon chapel mm. in California. I think it was Los Gatos. And that made the national news. And so it was, it was during those years at Microsoft specifically um, where I just start realizing this isn't just like a behavior that like God doesn't approve of. This LGBT Mormon religious orthodoxy stuff is a matter of life and death. Yes. And um, as my politics got more liberal and progressive, uh, as I started to develop more empathy for women, for feminism, for racism, that's when, after having my own faith crisis, I left Microsoft and I said, "We, if, if Mormonism is going to continue, it's got to become less sexist, less misogynistic, less homophobic, less racist, and it's got to come clean about its history. Yep. And so Mormon Mormon Stories was created literally to target, you know, those those vile tendencies within Mormonism. Including pedophilia cover-ups, I believe. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And the destruction of families, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Because Mormonism, one of its selling points is that we're, we love, Osmonds, we... We are bright and smiley and happy, and we love families. The One of the dark secrets of Mormonism is the Mormon church destroys many families mm -hmm. because it's it's so common in my work where a husband or a wife loses their faith and their spouse says, if you lose, if you leave, if you leave the church, our marriage is over and they might be alienated from their children. They might be disinherited from their parents. Uh, they might be cut off from their friends or their siblings or their community. This happens every day in 2023 hmm. in the Mormon church. And all that stuff needs to stop. Amen, if I may use a religious term. So um, there's so many bright, talented people who are open-minded and they say, how could the Mormon church be a cult? We have politicians who are Mormons. We have super successful business people like Mitt Romney, who is a presidential candidate. Uh, so please uh, give us a, a, a five-minute John Dolan special. Yeah. Well, I've been grateful for your education that so often we need to be able to use the term cult because what do you call David Koresh or Keith Raniere or— mm. Warren Jeffs or Jim Jones or or the Moonies, like if you can't call them a cult, you can't just call them a church. Like they're they're in a category that needs to have a name. Right. And you can call it a high demand religion or a cult. Obviously, using the term cult can be off-putting. It can create the backfire effect. 
And so it's almost never productive when you're speaking to a member right. of a specific church to address it as a cult. So with that disclaimer that that I, you know, you helped teach me about, mm. um, what's just a, a bold-faced fact is that if the cult word has any meaning, if we use any criteria, whether it's yours or, you know, the, those who influenced you, mm. like Robert Lifton yeah. and others, whether it's Luna Lindsay Corbin's book, Recovering Agency, where Luna lists 31, um, you know, tendencies mm. or tools of undue influence, yep. whatever criteria you use, the Mormon church seems to line up as as meeting criteria, as they say in the mental health right. biz. So following your own bite model, mm. if it's behavior, the Mormon church controls what you wear to a high level. They control what you eat. They control what you drink. No alcohol. And it's not just no alcohol. It's no tea, no coffee. Um, you know, uh, you know, no marijuana, no psilocybin or psychedelics, you know, white shirts and ties, short hair, no beards, you know, one ear piercing if you're a woman, no more than one, no tattoos. Like you can just go and down the, the list for women. Right? Oh, yeah, you have to wear the sacred, you know, holy temple garments that that you get in the temple. Mm. And if you're a woman, you can't show your shoulders. It's pornographic to show your shoulders, to wear a, a skirt that's above your knee, to show your midriff, to wear a bikini. Mm. And this in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that an organization meets criteria, but that's just one. Right. Clothing, you know, that clothing and, and diet, okay, that's two. Sexual behavior, the Mormon church would teach that masturbation's a sin, that any type of premarital sex whatsoever is not just a sin, but is a sin next to murder. Mm. And it, you know, not only is masturbation and sexual transgression a sin next to murder, but you've got to sit down with a bishop who's a middle-aged, usually white adult male. You got to sit alone with him, even if you're a 12-year-old girl or a or a 21-year-old young woman, you've got to sit in, you know, behind closed doors with a middle-aged white Mormon guy and confess your sins in graphic detail mm. to be able to get married in the temple or to be able to stay worthy right. in the church and not get kicked out. So again, these things start piling up and you realize this is a problem. So that's that's just behavior. And I could list a thousand things more just on behavior. When it comes to information, the I, the Mormon church has 150 plus years of hiding, intentionally hiding and deceiving its members and the world about its problematic history. The fact that Joseph Smith was a treasure digger, a money digger who, who engaged in occult practices prior to his work with the Book of Mormon and, and the church. Mm. The fact that um, Joseph Smith had 14-year-old wives that he married other men's wives, that he married sister pairs and mother-daughter pairs, that he had over 30, 30 wives. Over 10 of them were married to other men at the time he married hmm. them. This is information that is withheld not only from the rest of the world, but from most Mormons. Mm. And that's just the beginning about Joseph Smith. Right. Um, so, so hiding its problematic history and deceiving people about its problematic history and controlling the member's ability to learn anything factual about the church by either labeling factual information as satanic or as anti-Mormon right. 
or excommunicating people like me, anyone who speaks openly uh, about its history. The church has a history of excommunicating them, shaming them, ostracizing them, even, even smearing them through, you know, arm's length, nonprofit, wealthy donor type techniques, a lot like Scientology. That's that's just the I. Mm. The T is, and so of course, as you teach us, they control the information so they can control your thoughts. And of course, within Mormonism, there's a, a legion of thought-stopping techniques that are used to tell Mormons, doubt your doubts, don't doubt, um, you know, follow the brethren, uh, have faith, um, hold fast to the iron rod, stay away from apostates, stay away from evil, you know, excommunicants. In so many ways do they try and control the thoughts of the members to the point where in 2023, you can go and find your average Mormon and say, hey, average Mormon, how many wives did Joseph Smith have? How young were his wives? Did he have sexual relations with his wives? What about the Book of Mormon? What about the DNA evidence related to the Book of Mormon? What about the Book of Abraham? You can go through the list of all the different ways the Mormon church is problematic. What about John DeLynn? What about Mormon stories? What about all these resources that would teach you about your own church? And most Mormons to to this day in 2023 are oblivious to everything I just mentioned to you because of how effective the Mormon church is in in putting its members into a bubble so that they never learn the things they need to learn to make informed decisions, what I like to call informed consent. Yeah, informed consent, exactly. I want to just say you listed off 30 incredibly powerful questions, but you're not suggesting to my listeners you ask them all at one time. You're just saying you can pick one Wait yeah. a long time, oh, and yeah. they'll be like, yeah. "Oh, he didn't have any underage wives, or he didn't do this or that." And you told me the single best book was by Fawn Brody. Absolutely. Tell us about that book. What was the title again, John? So Fawn Brody was the niece of one of our former prophets, David O. McKay. He was a prophet for like twenty years. His niece was named Fawn McKay Brody. She got a master's degree at the University of Chicago. And she wrote a book called No Man Knows My History. It's a biography about Joseph Smith. It was, I think, first released in 1945, if I've got my dates right. But she did an updated version sometime in the 1970s. She's a famous biographer. She did a biography of Richard Nixon. She did a biography of Thomas Jefferson, predicting um, his relationship with Sally Hemings and the fact that he fathered, Thomas Jefferson fathered, children with his slave, Sally Hemings, before DNA evidence could even validate that. So she's a credible historian, was on the faculty of UCLA, and she wrote this book, No Man Knows My History, which to this day, by far, is the best book to read about the Mormon church's founder, Joseph Smith. Now, if I had a second book, there's a short 80-page book called um, Letter to a... CES letter or letter to a CES director written by my dear friend, Jeremy Runnels. And um, you can just type CES letter or csletter.org on your browser and get a free PDF or you can buy the book. We're going to link but to it in our blog for your, our listeners on Freedom You of can mind. read, you, it's like a six hour read 
and you can learn everything you need to know about the problems that the yeah, Mormon church Fawn is did a very scholarly. If I were, I have the book, it's a chunky read, but uh, very yeah. scholarly. And I want to just yeah. state: there's a problem always when there's a prophet, you know, a living person who says, "I I am getting messages straight from God." Uh, and yeah. and the LDS Church has such a person today. Is that correct? Absolutely. Joseph Smith, you know, shocked the Christian world by saying the you know, God God speaking to prophets didn't end with the Holy Bible and with the New Testament. I speak to God directly and I speak to Jesus directly and I am like Moses, I am like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Peter, James and John, I'm greater than them all. Mm. No man did more for the salvation of mankind save Jesus Christ alone than me, Joseph Smith. And mm. he basically started that tradition of the president of the Mormon Church or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a prophet who literally speaks to God and Jesus. And I I like to say that um, that no human on the earth should be allowed to say that they speak to God simply because that's too much power. And we have just uh, untold abuse that always flows forth from any human that claims to speak to God. So um, to and for God. Yeah. And so I, I think that it should be, I don't I'm know. I'm with you. Somehow. I'm totally yeah. with you. And I'm, I'm going to just mention in the cult of Trump, I talk about new apostolic reformation churches and mega churches uh, yeah. that comprise the base of the cult of Trump. And every one of them have a self-proclaimed prophet or apostle who speaks to God yeah. and casts out demons yeah. and has that level of control over their followers. So, you know, if if the leader says vote for X, they're going to vote for X. You know, they'll do whatever yeah. they're told. It's awful. And then the E of the bite model is you're yeah, chosen. And please, please continue. Let's finish. Yeah, it up. just emotional, just emotional manipulation or influence. Whether it's through the Mormon Tabernacle Choir singing amazing, you know, choral arrangements, whether it's through fear of uh, you know being separated from your family or being warned that you're under the guise of Satan, the Mormon or, or like telling people that sexual transgression is next to murder and severity. There are all sorts of ways the Mormon church uh, ramps up the emotional um, you know, pressure positively and negatively, even to the point of, of indoctrinating its members to believe that any negative emotion is, um, is a manifestation of Satan or the adversary. Mm. So that if a podcaster starts speaking truths about Joseph Smith, mm. and then an Orthodox Mormon starts feeling uncomfortable, instead of going, huh, why am I uncomfortable? Maybe it's because I've been lied to. Maybe it's because I'm learning things about my leader that I was never told and that are really problematic. Mormons are trained to think, oh, I'm having an uncomfortable emotion. That's the influence of Satan. I better stop listening to this podcast or put this book down right now. And that's emotional manipulation. Yes, it is. And phobia indoctrination. Yeah. So, and and, and Steve, you know, we could spend a week on each of these, B, the B, I, T, and E, just within Mormonism and not do it justice. So, Yeah, and especially a, the two-year missionary... Service. Uh, thing is really high on the B-I-T-E control. And just Absolutely. before we started re uh, recording, you were telling me 
that uh, women are now being sent out to do these two-year paired mission things. Uh, Talk about, talk a little bit about that, please. Yeah. Well, historically, men, Mormon men between the ages of 19 and 21 were encouraged to serve missions, or no, they were pretty much culturally required to serve missions. And then women from the ages of 21 to 23 were uh, provided the option of serving a mission if they hadn't gotten married yet. Uh Uh, But it was optional, and it was only if you you couldn't find a a husband, basically. Mm -hmm. And that was true for a lot, a lot of years. Then in the 2000s and, and 2010s, after the internet started really bearing down heavy on the Mormon church, they started to hemorrhage uh, their millennial members and their Gen Z members to the point where it was becoming an existential threat to the Mormon missionary program. Mm. So in the mid-2010s, I don't have the exact date in my mind, the Mormon church lowered the mission ages for men from 19 to 18 and from women to the ages of 21 down to 19. And instead of making it like not, not required for women, they basically said every 18 and 19 year old young man or woman who's Mormon, who's worthy and and physically fit and mentally fit should serve missions. Mm -hmm. And that's because the number of missionaries was tanking. Right. And the church knew it had a problem. So so ironically, there was this initial spike yeah. in missionaries when, when all the young teenage Mormon girls joined the fray to serve missions. Yeah. But since then, that number is, has come down. Mormon young men are, are in droves deciding not to serve missions. And um, as I understand it today, if my numbers aren't, incorrect, because the Mormon church is not transparent about its numbers, there are now more women serving two-year proselyting missions, and they only serve for a year and a half, but there are more young women serving Mormon missions than men, not because we've just got a bunch of women, but because men and women are are more and more declining to serve missions. So we went from like a high of 90,000 missionaries just a few years ago to like 50, 40 to 50,000 today, and the number's tanking. Yeah, and if my memory serves me, I seem to remember a New York Times front page story about Mormons. I think they were in Europe who, uh, because of the internet, uh, were learning and looking at the original documents, and they were like, the church is lying to us. So the internet, I think, is playing a huge role role in people's ability to get access to information without necessarily the church knowing about it. Is that correct? Yeah, Steve. And I would say, if if I can have a tiny bit of Mormon pride just for a second, one thing I'm most proud of is whether it's podcasts or YouTube channels or TikTok channels or Reddit, our Reddit channel, um, ex-Mormons I think, lead the world in ex-cult or ex-high-demand religion social media activism. The ex-Mormon Reddit has like 250,000 members. There are just infinite numbers of of ex-Mormon TikTokers. There are a lot of amazing uh, ex-Mormon or progressive Mormon podcasts and YouTube channels. And, And so... I'm I'm really proud of that. You and should yeah. be, and I'm you know the values of members: hardworking, disciplined, 
Uh, all of these qualities serve people to be very super uber successful in whatever area of life they choose to go into because of that upbringing and because they were protected in large measure from drugs and alcohol and other kinds of things that uh, others were not. So kudos on that level. But I guess I also, I want to go back and compliment you because I think because of your podcast and the fact that you're sixth generation, you know, LDS, you you towed the line, you went to BYU, et cetera. You're so credible as a psychologist and you make so much sense and you're so warm and empathic. So I think that's mm. hugely important. I also want to just take one minute. People don't realize how many really high profile people are ex-Mormon. And I was just reading uh, about the uh, the New Zealand head who said, my tank is you know run out. Uh, I believe her name is Ardeen. I, I, I hope I remember her last name properly. But yeah, I was surprised Jacinda to know she's- Jacinda Ar Ardern. Ar yes. Yeah, Jacinda Ardern. Thank yeah. you, Ardern. Yeah. Yeah. But she's an ex-Mormon. Yeah. And uh, who yeah. else is... Um, so B.J. Fogg at Stanford Persuasive Labs is an ex-Mormon. Um, I was just yeah, like reading about a billionaire, Brian Johnson, uh, who has made you know made billion dollars of PayPal or something related to financials, and he's putting money into neurotech to try to figure out what causes dementia and how to live longer. And he's an ex-Mormon too. There's so many really high-level successful people talk about that yeah the the list is the list is quite long um i i you know david archuleta who's was you know set runner up at american idol he's recently um come out as gay and is distancing himself from the church uh you know randy bachman and tal bachman of bachman turner overdrive or bto they're ex-mormons um you know D dan reynolds uh, the lead singer for Imagine Dragons, along with Wayne Sermon, who's the lead guitarist. Uh, they're out. Uh, Tyler Glenn, who's the lead singer of Neon Trees, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he's out. Um, Aaron Eckhart is a famous actor. Uh, as I understand it, he's ex-Mormon. Ryan Gosling, another Catherine Hagel. Um, you know, uh, uh, there, there are so many. Will Swenson is an actor and a Broadway performer. Um, Alex Winters is is uh, he's in the UK. He's a famous B BBC um, children's TV presenter. Uh, Bruce Bastian was one of the co-founders of Word Perfect. He's a he's a billionaire. Um, he's out. Uh, I think Nolan we're gonna Bushnell. we're gonna cut it off now because we could. <laughs> I have a feeling there are hundreds, uh, but yeah. maybe we should make a list and we can yeah. we can make a link to it in in, in our podcast. Uh, I mean, in the blog, absolutely. But um, there's so many. It's. Uh, <laughs> And I do want to share quickly, I just read a book called Cured um, uh, by a psychiatrist named uh, Jeffrey Rediger. Um, and I'm reading his book and he's talking about a woman who was given a terminal diagnosis. And he just mentions that she had been in the Mormon church, but never connected the dots that maybe this is related to her stress 
and high cortisol levels and the internal conflicts that were left over that she had never processed because he wasn't trained to work with cult members. And uh, Dr. Rediger just took my foundational course, uh, a nine-hour course, and he, he said, all mental health professionals need to understand this as a dissociative disorder with very unique, specific issues. Um, so I'm very excited just to mention uh, the ex-Mormon. There's so many people, also ex-JWs are in psychiatric hospitals and nobody stops to think about the fact that they were beaten as children and were shown videos of Armageddon as children and why go to college because Armageddon's gonna happen at any minute. And a lot of these folks are gay. That's another homophobic cult, as was the Moonies. In any case, I want to come yeah. back, if I may, to the prepper movement and the $100 billion and the gun caches and food caches. Yeah, the, the prepper thing is real. Uh, you know, I guess the Jehovah's Witnesses and... And others are famous for kind of like end of times, predicting when the world is going to end sort of thing. Yep. But the truth is the the Mormon church is called the Church of Jesus, is named legally the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because Joseph Smith predicted that the world was going to end likely in his lifetime. Mm. And those prophecies, while the formal church has tried to de-emphasize and distance itself from those teachings— they're there encoded by our founding prophet and most beloved leader. Mm. And so in 2023, you've got tens, if not hundreds of thousands of, of conservative, sort of right-wing, you know, Republican, almost, you know, MAGA-following, Trump-loving kind of Orthodox Mormons who buy massive amounts, who stockpile massive amounts of handguns and, and rifles and and assault weapons and ammunition, who buy tents and trailers and food storage, all under the assumption that within the next five to 10 years, there's going to be some massive earthquake and Mormons are, will be you know called to go to Missouri or to Ohio or the hills of Utah and set up tent cities and uh, prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ. And this sounds fanatical. This sounds like some extremist small cult, but this is a very large and significant wing of mainstream Orthodox Mormonism. Right. The same church that Mitt Romney's a part of is is uh, is the church I'm talking about. Right. And it's led to all sorts of extreme behaviors, including the Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow story right. about the, this couple that killed several of you know their own respective children and spouses because they were going to be this messianic couple that ushered in the coming of Jesus Christ as a part of this prepper movement. Um, yeah. And uh, they're, they're now sitting in jail waiting, you know, waiting for their court dates it's in Idaho. It's tragic you know? when children are killed uh, in the name of God or in the name of salvation and such. Um, yeah. So, John. Uh, and, uh, and I guess you asked about the oh, 120 yeah, billion. Please. You want to talk about it? Yeah, just. Please. Just, uh, you know, for for a long, long time, the Mormon church has not been transparent in its finances. I run a nonprofit. The federal government requires me to publish a 990 every year, which is 
disclose my finances. For some reason, in the United States, religions have convinced the government that they don't need to be transparent in their finances. Yeah, and they're somehow exempt. So for a long, long time, no one knew how much wealth the Mormon church had. They could only speculate. And then just in the past five years, it was leaked that the Mormon church had like $120 billion just in stocks and bonds and real estate and cash that we know of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and if you add to that what normal organizations like this have in their diverse uh, investment portfolios, plus all of the core assets of the Mormon mm-hmm. church, uh, we are easily somewhere between a $500 billion and trillion-dollar church. This makes us the most powerful and the wealthiest church in the United States. Wow. And that is— um, that's that's Mormonism. We're wealthier than the Catholic Church in the United States. And I notice you say we're still. Yeah, because because just like you 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 know, there. What do you call a Jew who doesn't believe in in God and who doesn't believe that a Moses Jew. exists? <laughs> I think of myself as a Mormon, even though the Church excommunicated me. Got it. Me. Got it. But a cultural a cultural Mormon, not a believer. Understood. Mormon. So I want um, I want to ask you to talk about colonization and its effects around the world because we were just talking about missionaries, but talk about you know its effects around the world. Yeah, well, one of Joseph Smith's genius moves was from the very beginning to send men on foreign missions to preach the gospel. Now, some would argue he did that so that he could proposition their wives. I think there's decent evidence that that happened in multiple instances. Um, But regardless, what that did is that started an immediate influx of immigrants from other countries to, uh, you know, Ohio and Illinois Mm -hmm. to help bolster the early Mormon movement. Mm -hmm. So we have a long, long history of missionary work. Uh, I myself being a part of that, going to Guatemala for two years to serve a mission. And, you know, a huge amount of the growth in the Mormon church has been fueled by this, uh, you know, foreign uh, missionary recruitment uh, movement. Recruitment is what I say. At, 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 say you call it Recruitment. What? Yeah, yeah. And to this day, now over 50% of the formal on paper members of the 17, the, the 17, quote, 17 million member Mormon church live outside of the United States. Um, and primarily reside in country in, in Latin American countries, in the Philippines, and now in Africa. Now, that's deceptive. There are not 17—the church says there's 17 million Mormons in the world. The truth is there's probably only 4 to 5 million people who identify as Mormons in the world. A massive percentage of those the church claims to be members— were baptized by Mormon missionaries in developing countries when they were seven or eight, Mm -hmm. never, ever attended church, never had um, testimonies, and fell away immediately after being baptized or just within a few months. And so there's a massive retention slash attrition problem in the Mormon church. Now, having said that, we are still the only place in the world where the Mormon church is growing if you— if you factor out the birth rate of U.S. Mormons, which is, you know, on average three per couple, that's what's keeping the Mormon church from being in decline in the United States. Mm -hmm. But the only other place where the Mormon church is growing is in these super poor 
uh, com- uh, countries, specifically in sub-Saharan Africa, mm. but anywhere else in the United in in the world, whether it's Canada, you know, many places in Latin America, and certainly in developed Asia and in Western Europe, and even Eastern Europe, the Mormon Church is in sharp decline. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't answer. You know, I'm I'm kind of talking about colonialism, but. But to this day, where the Mormon Church is ramping up its efforts is in Africa. Africa, you know, go back 30 years, the Mormon Church prohibited black members of the church from being members in full fellowship. They couldn't receive the priesthood if they were men. They couldn't receive the temple ordinances if they were men or women. It was a racist, you know, institutionally, structurally racist church. It still is in many ways, but it certainly was 30 or 40 years yeah. ago. Fast forward to today, Africa is practically the only area of growth for the Mormon church. Mm. Um, and and so you'll see the Mormon church investing in missions and temples in sub-Saharan Africa mm-hmm. while it's closing down missions and chapels everywhere else in the world. So interesting. So I understand yeah. that the Mormons in the U.S. were required to tie 10%. Is that correct? Not just in the U.S., in the world. Mm-hmm. In fact, you can find many, many, many statements from top Mormon leaders, including apostles, telling Filipinos, telling Ecuadorians, pay your tithing before you buy shoes for yourself. Pay your tithing before you buy food. And I'm not exaggerating. Mormon prophets, seers, and revelators are on record teaching members in developed worlds that they pay their 10% before they buy food or, b- and or is buy shoes. that's gross or net of income? Well, see, the church intentionally leaves that ambiguous uh-huh. so that at, at worst, they pay 10% of their net. But many Mormons say to be a legitimate Mormon, you got to pay on the gross. Wow, and they're so wealthy, $120 billion. They should be subsidizing oh, these African members Steve, and feeding Steve, them. The, an- the annual budget for the Mormon church, and the annual revenue that the Mormon church collects right now, separate from its investment income, yeah. is around 8 or $9 billion a year. So with an operating budget of, let's just say, $7 billion a year, the Mormon church, just with its... residual tithing income, putting these hundreds of billions of dollars worth of investments aside, just with its annual tithing uh, receipts, could could fund its own global budget. So there is no need for the Mormon church to be telling its, its developing world, third world members to continue paying tithing. Because if you then add in the literally tens of billions of dollars the Mormon church earns in Tesla investments, Microsoft investments, Google investments. The Mormon church owns between two and 4% of the public lands in Florida. Wow. Think about that. Like the Mormon church is probably the largest private landowner in the United States with all of the holdings and the stocks and the bonds and the assets and the municipalities and the cash that the Mormon church has, it does not need another dollar of tithing revenue and it could still become a trillion dollar church if it isn't already. But it's tax exempt also. It's all tax exempt. And so the fact that it's, it's requiring it's, it's third world or developing world members 
to pay 10% of their income or they can't see their own child get married in, in a Mormon temple is, is it's, it's outrageous. It's, it's egregious. Evil. I think it's, it's, it's kind of evil. It's really it's kind awful. Of evil. I, yeah, I I'm honestly, not, I'm not exaggerating. I didn't believe that. I thing. thought it was yeah. just the wealthy Americans would pay the 10%. And oh, it's, it's worldwide. There, there, you can actually Google, you know, Mormonism tithing. I have a channel called understanding Mormonism where I put together in like a 20 minute video excerpts of Mormon apostles telling its third world members to pay tithing. I'm not oh, making we're this adding up. that to the just... blog too, please. We have to <laughs> make a list of all these incredible resources you've developed over over the years. Yeah. So, um, wow, we've covered a lot of different points. Um, I agree with you uh, that for me, reforming institutions, especially if they've been around for a long time, is the way to go. Uh, what's the chance of the next prophet, you know, getting a revelation and addressing all of these, you know, improprieties and deceptions? Is that is that a possibility or do they have to toe the line of Joseph Smith was a great guy instead of a criminal? So the good news is, and I'll say this is, you know, tepid good news, is that the Internet has forced the Mormon church to make changes that at its own historic pace has been um, have, have been very rapid. So once the Mormon internet came on the scene in 2004, 2005, and, and like, you know, the world became aware of just the LGBTQ suicide epidemic, yeah. of all this massive wealth of the church, of the church deceiving its members, the Mormon church has been forced to start to make changes. Mm. So uh, whether it's trying to be more transparent in its history by releasing a set of gospel topics essays, whether it's softening its LGBTQ rhetoric by no longer claiming that it's a sin to be gay, it's only now a sin to do gay or to act in sexual ways, um, whether it's uh, trying to show more love and compassion for LGBT people, whether it's trying to excommunicate less uh, public voices, mm. um, the Mormon church is slowly making baby steps in a positive direction. It's also starting to try and give women a little bit more visibility, a little bit of more leadership responsibility, although still to this day, the core leadership in the Mormon church are, are white males. Women are excluded from the priesthood, and they're excluded from the top levels of decision-making in the church. The church is responding to the internet primarily because it's hemorrhaging its millennials and its Gen Z members. And basically its attack on the LGBTQ community is now reverberating and and uh, it's it's causing the church to self-destruct. Interesting. So so just just today we're going to be doing an episode about how the Mormon Church is potentially starting to backtrack on its LGBTQ policies. But but Stephen, it will take decades for the Mormon church to become fully transparent in its finances, to become fully transparent in its history, sure. to allow same-sex marriage, to allow women to hold priesthood office, to remove the racist teachings from the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses and the Book of Abraham. Yeah. So we have decades to go, but the good news is the internet is forcing the church 
to start to make well, I'd say the people changes. using the internet like yourself are forcing uh, it to be accountable. So I just have, we're running out of time, but I needed to ask you about Mitt Romney, if I may, because you know, I live in Massachusetts. He was our governor. He pushed through uh, healthcare reforms that were amazing. And he was one of the few people who stood up to Donald Trump in, in his evil deeds, but he was treated so badly uh, by Mormons. Talk to me about like what was going on? What were people at in the hierarchy of the church saying, no, we need to support Donald Trump and therefore encouraging it? Or like, what's your take? Yeah. So I don't know how much you know about Mormon history, but um, a Mormon was once secretary of agriculture under Dwight D. Eisenhower. So Dwight D. Eisenhower picked a Mormon apostle named Ezra Taft Benson, who's actually a cousin of mine, to be secretary of agriculture. Ezra Taft Benson not only was secretary of agriculture, he was a proud supporter of the John Birch Society mm. and a massive conspiracy theorist. So starting in the 1960s, you see this Mormon apostle um, teaching conspiracy theories and ultra conservatism to its membership. And ultimately in the 80s, my cousin Ezra Todd Benson became a president and a prophet of the Mormon church. And that's what's behind this prepper movement and this sort of right wing support, because you won't find many states in the United States more red, more supportive of the Republican Party than Utah, maybe Wyoming, I think but, Utah but you won't wins. Find, yeah, yeah. And so Utah, you know, in in Mormonism, being Mormon and being Republican have become almost synonymous. And I would say 75% of Mormons are in the U.S. Mm. are strong Republicans. Mm. And so, yeah, while, while Mormons loved Mitt Romney when he was completely, uh, you know— um, supportive of of mainstream republicanism as soon as the republican party turned in kind of the trump direction the minute mitt romney showed disloyalty to donald trump he became an enemy not just of uh you know of the republican party in many instances of the base but also of the mormon people and that's why i consider mitt romney to be a personal hero even though he remains um, maybe even because he remains a faithful Mormon, but was willing to stand up with the courage and integrity against not only his party and the president of the United States, but also against most of his own people. Mitt Romney is a hero to me. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you. And I remember before Trump was elected, he did a whole speech about what a con man he was and how dangerous he was to America. Um, and yeah. then he was invited after Trump won to interview for Secretary of State. And at that point, I was like, oh, Mitt, you were so good. And then, like, <laughs> what happened, dude? But um, yeah. this is— And to and answer, and answer your question, I don't know that the Mormon church leaders are telling the members to— uh, to hate on Mitt Romney. I'm sure there are many who do hate Mitt Romney, yeah. but— it's more that the that that the genie's out of the bottle, and it's more that they're not more courageous. Like if 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 Mormon church leaders speak to God and Jesus, and if they are followers of Jesus Christ, there's no way a single Mormon should be voting, in my opinion, for Donald Trump, 
not because of his politics, just because of his moral and character failings. Yeah. And so putting partisanship and policy aside, there's not a Christian alive, in my opinion, that should be voting for Donald Trump if they take their Christianity seriously. Right. And my biggest criticism of Mormon church leaders is that they haven't openly and publicly denounced Donald Trump for his lack of, of, of basic moral decency. Yeah, exactly. Wow, uh, our hour has flown by, and uh, we've covered. All and we haven't even talked about multi-level marketing, Steve. I was, <laughs> the, I did want to mention that is the capital <laughs> of the U.S. for multi-level marketing. Okay, go for it, John. No, no, no. It's there's so much. There's chronic levels of depression and suicide suicidality in Utah, of pornography use, of of prescription drug abuse. Utah is beautiful, and it's a mess. And, and the Mormon church has a lot that it has done to contribute to the mental health crisis that is Utah, and, and multi-level marketing schemes are a big part of that uh, as well. So, you know, I love Mormon people. Me too. I, I'm proud of my heritage, yep. and the Mormon church and the Mormon people have a lot of work to do to clean up a lot yep. of messes. So— uh, John DeLynn, Dr. Don, John DeLynn, a clinical psychologist, a podcaster, uh, CEO of a nonprofit. And uh, you do a thing called Thrive to help do outreach to support people. And I'm hoping that we'll be together in March uh, and do some things together there. I want to thank you profoundly, brother. I, I'm so looking forward to meeting you in person and giving you a big hug because you you deserve it. Yeah, and and we do want to bring Stephen Hassan to Utah um, the week preceding March 18th. So go to thrivebeyondreligion.com and you'll be able to find details about Steve's visit to Utah. And um, yeah, mormonstories.org is where you can check out the podcast. Stephen, you're a legend. You're a hero to me and, and so many people. It's an honor to be on your podcast, and thanks for all you're doing. Oh. I, we we stand on your shoulders. Thank you, and I learn every time I talk with you, and I want to learn more. So thank you, and we'll be in touch soon. Take care. Thanks, Stephen. Bye. Take care, you too. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. 
If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at IGOTOUT.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.